vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight? Ah, uh, it's going pretty good. Going pretty good. Matt, I got a question for you tonight. Talk to me about your perfect pizza. That is a good question. Now, I am, for those of you who don't know, a resident, lifetime, lifelong resident of New Jersey. I had no idea. <laughs> Shock of shocks. So I am more for a New York style pizza. Dinner crust, not deep dish, not thin crust, dinner crust. Since I began my eating better health regimen, I generally go for either just a classic cheese pizza or there is a pizzeria near us that does an absolutely delicious white veggie. You got spinach, you got some broccoli, you got some tomatoes. Some other veggies on there too. No peppers, which is important because I'm allergic, and I don't that have. It's very important. Yeah, I don't have to ask them to not put the peppers on, which you often have to do with veggie pizza. Really like that, and it's as pizza goes a fairly healthy option. The average slice is probably about fifty calories less than your standard cheese slice. I typically like a pizza that's closer to cheese bread than pizza. Ah. Uh, I, I don't like a lot of sauce. I get irritated when I get a pizza and it's a thicker crust, but it's a floppy crust. I don't want I don't want something floppy. I don't want something mushy. I want a good firm crust. Uh which I was disappointed the last time we went out for pizza because it was it was a soft bake, but I got our meat lovers with chorizo. That oh, was good. That was good. Yeah, I mean, I, I will still, as a treat, sausage, good sausage pizza. Or that 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 is now a treat versus my default. But every now and then, you got to treat yourself. Matt can have some sausage as a treat, <laughs> and we have a guest. So, Abigail, welcome back, Hello. Abigail. What about you? I have to say, again. Spent a lot of time in Miami, ate a lot of chorizo, even knowing that when Will ordered that chorizo pizza, I was a little bit like, I don't think that, like, I'm not saying in idea alone this is bad. I just don't trust this Alabama pizzeria to somehow pull off good chorizo. I stand it corrected. It was wonderful. And it's like, okay, so that's what should just always be there. Like, this is the new standard, so to speak. Like, we set a new floor. Here is the eternal question. Pineapple on pizza. Yay or nay? No, no. It's not a dessert. Pineapple is a fruit. I tend to like meats only. I Hmm. very infrequently, very sparingly will accept some vegetables and god help you any kind of fruits no i will say way back when when i was in high school i was dating a young lass and mind you where i went to high school linden washington there's nothing we all hung out at a right age 
because that's all there was. It's 45 minutes to get to the closest thing that's like a slightly bigger town. We'd go up into Vancouver across the border because that theater was closer than the nearest movie theater to us in the States. But it was a huge deal that this pizza place opened up in Linden, Washington. And this was like groundbreaking because there was pizza that was actually available. And girl, I was dating big, big family. So like three times a week, they meet and the whole family sits down and has dinner and they go out to have pizza. And their whole thing was they liked the pineapple pizza from this pizza place, which I was originally very opposed to this but i have to admit there's a certain tang to it not so much it's like well let me have six slices of this but it's also like as like a palate cleanser if you've got other real pizza to eat from as well on the table i'd say you can it's like yeah that was a nice almost dessert slice interestingly enough when it comes to dating people i dated someone back in college and her thing was pineapple and black olives the black olives are a salty sort of bitter taste balancing out the sweetness of the pineapple no i don't need olives to begin with so that pizza was right out for me but and that's the other good thing about that veggie pizza from the place near us no olives it does have mushrooms that's the other thing that it has mushrooms but yeah so Pizza never talk. will understand black olives on pizza. You wanted to ruin it? Like, <laughs> that was... Is this penance? Like, what's going on? Olives in general are a thing that I do not get. It is the thing that Amber is eternally grateful that I do not get olives. Because anytime we're eating salads or anything and there's olives on it, she gets all my olives. She is very happy to have all of my olives. Yeah, I guess that's what they call the olive theory. Yes, indeed. But we are on a pizza podcast. Somebody I'm sure has one, but that is not what we are. We are a Batman podcast. And tonight, well, Abigail is here because Abigail wanted to talk about Gotham Academy. And so we are not just talking about Gotham Academy. It's Bat Chat Goes to School Week. Woo! But we are indeed starting with Welcome to Gotham Academy. This is Gotham Academy issues one to six. The writers are Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher. Pencils by Carl Kershaw and Mingju Helen Chen. Inks by Kershaw and Chen. Colors by Geyser, Dave McCaig, John Rauch, Michelle Asarasakorn, Sergei Lapointe, and Mingju Helen Chen. Letters by Steve Wands and edited by Matt Humphreys and Mark Doyle. Cover dates are December of 2014 through May of 2015. Gotham Academy holds many secrets, and Olive Silverlock is one of them. She comes back for her sophomore year with a hole in her memory and a feeling of being an outsider. But that's the least of her worries, as a haunting is the talk of the school. Olive and her friends will soon learn the haunting connects to Olive's past as well as that of Gotham City and the school itself. So what about this made it something you wanted to talk about, Abigail? I'll be honest, it was mainly the art that drew me to it, and that's what got me to pick it up and start reading it, was I absolutely adore not just the character design, 
but the backgrounds in it, I just feel like I saw one of the pages of it and I was like, I felt like, okay, I'm there at that Academy. I really think the details and it is like the Academy is later such a character in the book of itself. And I really feel like they gave it justice. And be honest, it's like, well, what if there was a gal pal coming of age high school CW show that just happened to be set in Gotham? And it's like, okay, I'm totally down for that. <laughs> like One that doesn't feature Batman's random adopted son, The Rose, and Carrie Kelly. I still haven't watched the Gotham Knights pilot. It is still sitting on my DVR. And Batman's son doesn't show up until the very end of this arc. Yes. Well, I would mind you, I think later this evening, we're in, like, you may say, like, well, there's not a lot of Batman in this comic. Later, I think we're going to look at one and we're all going to agree, wow, that one, that comic without Batman was, that was a lot good. This one could benefit from that if they just kind of took Batman out of this. But... I was talking to my lovely husband and I feel like he and I maybe were at a crossroads of his, I'll let him say his thought on it, of that it was maybe a little slow. Whereas for me, I was like, oh, I love these first three issues of just Maps is my new favorite person in anything. She's adorable and just a bundle of energy and her being paired with all of who's just Uh, it's the guy I dated, his younger sister, I need to be nice. And then it grows on her. Like, I feel like they bond. I don't think Will has ever really been into any of the maps that we have had, we've read for the column. He always felt like maps is tonal whiplash when it comes to a Batman story. Are you not even remembering the map stories we've read? No, not at all. She was in at least one black and white and a three-part backup in Batman. I believe during the Williamson run. Oh, I tried to just block all of that out. It was it was pretty much the Gotham Academy team doing a three-part Bruce and Maps and Stuart dwelling monster story. That repressed memory aside, I will echo the things I've already told my wife. This was a little too ponderous for me in the beginning, a little too meandering. The The mystery of what happened to Olive Summer, um, I didn't really get into until the fourth issue. Really strong climax, but just you got to get going a little bit a little bit faster. I understand that they probably knew they had a much longer runway than some of the things we've read uh, recently. Like in terms of pacing, like compare this to Blue Wall, like totally different tonally, but you know, Blue Wall knew it only had what? Six, six issues? issues. Yeah. And so it's like story, 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 story. This is characterization and development and taking a look at all of the scenery. Which, as Abby said, very beautiful book. Uh, I especially love the uh, the flashbacks, but uh, in general, very pretty. That's the genre. We're dealing with something that is far more akin to a high school relationship manga than a traditional U.S. superhero comic. 
I think that is very solid analysis. Like, I almost want to say this is like the, I feel like there are a couple of spinoff manga versions of tons of different comics somewhat. I feel like, you know, I almost want to say this is the first one I've read that's successful. Even though it's not quite that, I feel like it's very much almost Buffy the Vampire Slayer-esque. It's like there's a monster of the week, but really that monster in this episode is only going to show up for like five minutes of screen time. The rest is just who was doing what at high school. And I like for me, something about just the character of I don't really care about the mystery of what happened to her summer. I'm just eating up with this character dealing with the fact of like, again, the high school story of you were one person and you're at a time in your life where a summer happens and now you're in the same place with the same people, but you're completely different. And you're just trying to grip with as you're leaving adolescence and growing. We're going to detour away from the pointed analysis of the the high schoolness of it and get into some some serious deep easter egg territory because this thing is littered with easter eggs specifically to different television versions of batman because there are two 66 references and three DC animated universe references on top of various obscure comic book characters popping up. The 66 references I'd wager you probably picked up right away, Will. Uh, don't don't put money on that. What you got? Well, Aunt Harriet is Oh, oh uh, look, 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 that didn't even count as a reference. Yes, okay. I know Aunt Harriet. So Aunt Harriet and Bookworm <laughs> as the librarian. Bookworm I did not get, but yes, yeah. Aunt Harriet. We, we need more Aunt Harriet in comics. But the, the librarian, A.S. Scarlet, is Bookworm. This was his first canonical comics appearance. Hmm. But the, there's two Batman the Animated Series references. One, when they first are hanging out with Killer Croc, and then I threw a rock at him, is a line directly from Almost Got Him. The drama teacher, Simon Trent, is the Grey Ghost, the actor who played the Grey Ghost. Oh! Which is why he says, I have a certain history in playing ghosts. Aha! Look at that. Okay. And the one that is sort of pieced out over time but becomes clearer as the series progresses, they do say his first and last names separately. The kid who Colton is getting to kind of do his dirty work and is giving fireworks to is Warren McGinnis, Terry's father as a kid. Whoa. Okay. That becomes very clear in the annual when there's some time travel shenanigans, but this is the canonical appearance in the DC universe of Terry McGinnis's dad. Always up to some shady stuff. But speaking of the canonicity of this book, it, exists in a sort of near adjacent to canon but doesn't completely line up with what's going on in the bat line at the time because the first issue of gotham academy comes out the same month that arkham falls in eternal so all the talk of arkham collapsing does line up i did remember the uh, gates of gotham reference 
Yep. So at least there was that. And this does help place it in about that same time era, etc. It does, but the one thing that doesn't line up is Croc. Because we know Croc wasn't in Arkham when Arkham collapsed. He was working with Catwoman and hanging out as the guardian of the Forgotten. So, again, there's some jingle-jangliness with how it fits directly within continuity. But that is a fairly minor quibble when it's really much more of a character piece. And the fact that they even tried to get it to fit in with all of the shenanigans going on in the main bat titles is pretty impressive it does eventually have a couple of crossovers with the other titles it has an endgame one shot and is part of the robin war crossover with various robin related titles but it's mostly its own little thing let's also get a uh, lumberjanes crossover it does which is a lot of fun if you've never read Lumberjanes, Lumberjanes is a great comic. Each of our characters starts out, at least, as a fairly standard high school archetype. Olive is the outsider. Maps is all the energy in the world. Pomeline is the mean girl. Kyle is the big man on campus. Colton is the class clown. And Tristan is the out, the mysterious himbo outsider. It's essentially the Breakfast Club. We can we can we don't need to beat around the bush. We can just yeah, it, it is essentially your your Breakfast Club in a mysterious Gotham school, and it's more than just building out the characters. It is really slowly building out the mythology and not just the mystery of Olive's summer but the mystery surrounding what connects gotham academy to arkham asylum and all the mystery history of gotham because we've got cobble pots here and as has been clear in any story you've seen featuring cobble pots in the past the rotten waddling apple does not fall terrible far from the tree wow <laughs> You know, your one decent cobble pot was institutionalized for wanting to ruin her family by spilling all their secrets. Something that was fairly easy to do for a father to do to his daughter or a husband to do to his wife in the late 1800s. Or even into the uh, 1900s. Just ask the Kennedys. Yep, very true. We're also building out mysteries that are even outside that because you've got Tristan, who is a man bat, which ties into the viral version of the man bat serum from earlier in the new 52 when there was a man bat virus that got loose in Gotham. Not what you want. No, especially because if memory serves, I think you got a Mr. Zaz man bat out of that story. I know Zaz was in that run. I think he might have been infected during that particular issue, too, which is bad mojo. Mm. Oh, and this is where we saw Professor Milo, which is strange that because I had thought that this book started earlier. So it felt to me like Milo's inclusion in Eternal was an accident. But I guess this probably had to begin production earlier was probably not closely coordinated with Eternal. 
So the fact that they drew Milo into here and he was also appearing in Eternal does deal with that one panel in Eternal where they're like, yeah, and he's also teaching at Gotham Academy while also working at Arkham and spearheading all the weird Deacon Blackfire shit. Well, you know, if you're just an adjunct, you can get around. If you have read this entire series, I will give them a lot of credit for laying a lot of the seeds of things to come, both in the mystery and the interpersonal stuff, because it becomes a little more clear in issue six. But knowing the entire breadth of the story in, I think it's issue two, where Colton and Olive maybe three, are having their first real talk. He seems really interested in the fact that she and Kyle split up. And there's like this little sort of grin. And not knowing where it's going, your initial assumption or the initial assumption of many readers is that he's kind of looking at Olive with that look. But no, he's into Kyle. And you don't learn that for quite a ways into the series, but knowing it, reading back, it's like, oh, they were laying the groundwork from that from Jump. I love when a comic knows where it's going and seeds things that early and that far ahead of when the reveal was going to happen. And you have to have a commitment from editorial for that. Which I would say, like, I think that's the thing of... The again, somewhat talking about like, I don't want to say high school melodrama, but sort of that like interpersonal like relationships. I think the reason it works and comes off so well in this is because it seems like they have a clear idea that they're following. Whereas sometimes you're the same sort of genre, you're reading it and it kind of seems like they're going by the seat of their pants. And then they're like, okay, we want to go in this direction and pull this in now because this is where we want to go. Whereas reading this, I think it seems, everything seems solid to me with all those relationships, which I think is because it's again, like they have a clear idea of what they want to do and that's what they're doing. They're not just trying to fill things in or respond to how last time's issue did. I feel like DC put a lot behind this book. They saw that this was a genre that was working in YA fiction and YA graphic novels. And so they wanted to see if they could get it to work in a monthly periodical which they, I mean, they got 32 issues out of it over two volumes, including an annual and a special, which is a solid run. But I don't think it did the numbers they were hoping, which is why we now see DC doing the YA and middle grades graphic novels, because that's where that genre lives, at least in modern comics. At the book fair. Yeah, absolutely. And the other character we meet is Heathcliff, who is eventually shuffled off into another title, which we actually get hints of here, too. I don't think that was necessarily seated. He eventually goes on the road with a band because he keeps uh, Pomeline's boyfriend who keeps talking about music. He winds up being the manager for Black Canary Dinah's band for the, the 12 issue Black Canary series. Okay. I don't manager might not be it. He was like their like road guy, like not moving stuff, but he wasn't in the band. 
and that was another beautiful series. Uh, I mean, it was by Becky Cloonan who wrote this, but Annie Wu Art, which if you know her work from Hawkeye, is really, really pretty. Which, again, it has a lot in common with this book. I was honestly really surprised when I was doing the credits for this book that it had as many colorists as it has. When you see that many colorists on a book, I would have expected the color palette to be very different, but it was really consistent across issues. I mean, the the, the flashbacks were colored differently, but it was consistent. I couldn't tell we were jumping colorists. Me not knowing anything about anything, as usual, feels like you could have colorists get on board and do some type of collaboration a lot easier than you might have artists. I, I suppose if they were provided with a palette, coloring is something I do not know enough about to specifically speak to. There isn't a ton of Batman in this book. Mostly he shows up as sort of a dark figure in Olive's memories but he eventually does show up at the very end. And this is not the most charitable take on the Dark Knight. He obviously cares, but he really doesn't know how to talk to teenagers here. Which I always find weird because how many freaking words has he raised? He should have some idea of how to do this. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, it should be like the... Like, I've got a problem with this teenager. Like, Bruce Wayne's kind of the guy you call for that. He's like, okay, so what's the trouble they're having? Okay, well, let me tell you about this one ward I had and about his mother. And let me tell you, like, I do love, though, just... Like, you see from early on, she's not a fan of Batman, which then, like, spoilers as we're talking about it, um, it is because Batman, she thinks Batman's responsible for putting her mother in Arkham. And I do just, I love that the like moving action for her isn't like, ah, oh, my mom's this like super villain or like whatever. And I'm gonna, it's like a child dealing with, I lost my mom and I'm embarrassed to tell people this is where my mom is, is that she's in a mental hospital and Batman put her there saying that she's in a coma, which was like heartbreaking for me to read that. Because when I first read that, I was like, I don't think her mom's actually in a coma. And ugh. we'll eventually see more about Sybil Silverlock, unsurprisingly, as the series continues. I believe most of that is answered by the end of volume one. And the whole thing is wrapped up fairly tightly by the end of volume two and the maps backups in batman recently continued the story of some of these characters it does not answer all the questions they did leave some dangling more minor plot threads but the major action is resolved and answered by the end of the series by the end of the second semester anyway but where are they going to go to college matt Arkham, there's Arkham U. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it does not at all sound like the world's most disquieting college. I mean, although, in all fairness, the number of professors locked up in Arkham, they would have most of a teaching staff. 
Right. I mean, I think that's that's really in if you're a collegiate professional in Gotham, you either wind up with tenure or you wind up in Arkham. It's like those are the two routes. It's like And depending on your dean, you might be better off in Arkham. Yeah. I'm out of things. Anybody else have anything? I will just a shout out to, I think it's maybe, it's very early in the first book, the, the splash page that's with the red dotted line of the trail they're walking through campus. And then it's just zooming in on different, like this is like a freeze frame of everything that's happening. I found that splash page to be one of my absolute favorites of that I've looked at things of just an awesome way. Let's just move transition along. Let's show a big wide view of like the Academy. Just a shout out of like, that's one of my favorite splash pages I think ever. I have that particular bit of art called out myself. It's really neat. My last note more Aunt Harriet. And with that, that means it's time to Gotham Academy on the big board. Well, we currently have 243 stories on the big board. Story number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50. We have For the Man Who Has Everything, where Bruce Wayne tells Jason Todd to think clean ch- thoughts, chum. And coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman Hush, and Tommy can go fuck himself. At 100 is Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77. At 150, we have the post-New 52 origin of Batman, Zero Year. At 200 is Batman Adventures Annual Number 2, Demons. And, hey, down at the bottom, still White Knight. It's even, I'm just looking at it, and it's tricky to even sort of, to to find a starting place for this, because it is very different from most of the things that we have covered. It's so intrinsically linked to Gotham, but not terribly linked to Batman. Well, let's start randomly. 139, Scooby-Doo team up number two, who's scared? I think this is better. That's fun, but even as Scooby-Doo team-ups go, it's it's very trifly. It's fun to see the mystery analysts of Gotham, but... It's not the most deep of those. Like, hey, yeah, Scooby and Ace the Bat Hound are teaming up. It's fun. All right. We'll make it harder. Scooby to team up number 50. Crisis of Infinite Scoobies at 118. Ooh. I really like that one. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fucking fun there. It's a lot of fun. It's deeply Batman. It's a celebration of the anniversaries of all of those characters. I don't think it can top that, but I don't think it's that much further down. No, I I really think we're in the right area. This feels very much like Batman Adventures number 12, Batgirl day one, 
year 100 127 gates of gotham 124 like stories that are solid but not essential got sort of Azrael at 121 that's an interesting comparison point because that is equally attempting to build a whole universe in one story here you're trying to build the entire world of Gotham Academy. There you're building the entire system of the Order of St. Dumas. You're introducing a character there who is more integral to the mythos, but who is not as fully formed in that story than Olive or Maps. Because Jean-Paul there is just kind of like, oh, I don't know what's going on. What's going on around me? Oh, I'm Azrael. He is just sort of that. There's something that British science fiction and fantasy authors often do. You'll see it with Douglas Adams and Neil Gaiman very specifically. That hapless protagonist thrown into a story. Arthur Dent in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Richard Mayhew in Neverwhere. That is almost Jean-Paul, only he also happens to have a killer angel in his head. So he's a little less hapless when the combat starts, but he's still like being dragged places by Namaz and getting caught up in this whole, you have to go and kill the demon bis. I don't want to kill the demon bis, but you have to. It's the system, Jean-Paul, the system. I'd, I'd be inclined to go above sort of Asriel. Yeah. If that's the case, I might put this right below Scooby's at the new 119. Okay. Up next, we have the original graphic novel, Bruce Wayne, Not Super. The writer is Stuart Gibbs with art and colors by Barat Pekmeschi. Letters by Taylor Esposito and edited by Jim Chadwick and Courtney Jordan. The cover date is March of 2023. Bruce Wayne is the only student at Gotham Preparatory School for the really gifted without some kind of superpower. But he wants to make a difference in Gotham City, something none of the other kids seem to. Watch as middle school age Bruce takes his first steps to becoming Gotham's greatest hero. This is the fourth book in DC's middle grades graphic novels that we have done. The others are... Batman and Robin Howard, Batman's Mystery Casebook, and Batman Overdrive. I'm going to make a bold statement. I'm going to say that those three are all better. I agree. This is the first one of these that I have read where I put it down and was like, that wasn't for me. Each of the other three felt more like they were written with the... This is for kids, but grown-ups will find things to latch onto and enjoy in here too. This one feels very much this is a book for the 8 to 12 crowd. Yeah, and this too and and no offense to the author here, but he does a lot of just other stuff like this is not somebody deeply invested in the dc universe and, and that's not to say that the other writers uh of those other three books were like dc lifers we know this... charlie fish sure was oh oh geez this seems very generic this seems like i had an x-men pitch sitting on the shelf 
I took that, I crossed out all of the names, I rewrote a handful of things, and I came up with this. It's cute. It's not terribly written, but this, I don't know, I feel like this should have been rejected at the pitch stage. Like, my number one thing with anything with Batman, Gotham adjacent, or Batman universe, like, adjacent, is like, this would be so much better if they just put Batman in it as a character. Like, why are they dancing around it? There's no reason to not just put Batman in it. I now stand corrected. There is something I have read, and it's like, this would be so much more interesting and better if Batman, if this bat version of Batman wasn't in it. Because like the first 10 pages, maybe, I was sold on this book. I absolutely loved it. I loved the full images of the different like screenshots of Gotham. I was like, I'm in. The walking up to the school and it felt kind of like Smallville of just like, oh, I know who that is by the color pattern of their clothing. Oh, that's Wonder Woman. I can tell because her backpack is kind of lasso-y. Loved that. That was great. And then there's the Diary of the Wimpy Kid Batman story that just doesn't fit with the character of Batman. And I do think that in this world, there's a telling of this same world with like a Batman who is like a younger Batman we know who has some confidence and is like ready to fight the establishment. But this is just what do they call him badger man or yes, badger boy something at the end badger boy i i think that's uh pine to that this was originally scripted as badger boy and somebody in a picture room was like well couldn't that just be batman and the guy was like it can totally be if you're willing to print it oh that that joke really got old really fast i have two big sort of discussion-y questions at the top of my notes on this that I'll, I'll posit in a moment. I've read a lot of these middle grade books, not just the Batman ones, but these are great, what I like to call nightstand books. I leave these, these all these books on my nightstand and right before I'm ready to go to sleep, I read a chapter or two, calms me down. The, the stakes are never you know so high that I'm going to bed with my mind racing. They're very, very relaxing this is not the only one where i completely agree with both of you that somebody had a pitch and then they altered it there's a lois lane one where it's like they just made you know generic teen detective character said oh reporter instead of detective and it's lois lane it was like they had a nancy drew or like harriet the spy knockoff and they made it a Lois Lane story. And that one always bugged me. And this one does generally feel like he had the idea for, you know, kid without superpowers in school of kids with superpowers sky high. And then was like, but we can just use DC characters and skin them over these other characters. And that is in many ways, the lead into question number one, when you're dealing with a sort of an AU an alternate universe, what are gimmies and what are deal breakers what are the things that you have to see and or what are the things that if you read them it's like no this does not work clark kent as a bully does not work that That, was a bad 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 choice it immediately (laughs) threw me out of this book i was done 
And not only is that a bad choice, you're literally in a world where you have the entire rogues gallery to pick somebody and do a youth version of them who can be a bully. And you're like, Clark Kent? Clark Kent, right? (laughs) I could not get over Clark Kent as the bully because it is so out of character with every iteration of clark kent even like the john byrne version where they took away like clark as nerdy high school student and he was you know football player and this and that he was still a good kid because that's how jonathan and martha raised him this clark kent was not raised by the kents because they would not let this kid know and i think for me that was so jarring because it is like the first 20 pages now he's listing off and you're seeing all these different characters as versions of themselves just like in this alternate universe school you have poison ivy and harley quinn holding hands in the hallway i love arthur curry talking to the fish it's like brainiac learned french in two days like and it's like oh i'm loving this And then to me, it felt like a solid, like, just drop of like, wait, what? Clark Kent's a bully? Like, I'm immediately pulled out of this nice little run I was of enjoying this. I was just like, that's weird. That was a huge, huge deal breaker for me. And if you don't know who any of these characters are, maybe that works. But if you're even like, a 10-year-old who's right in this age group who is borderline familiar with these characters. I'm shocked that DC was like, yeah, Superman can be your high school bully. Now, let me tell you what would have worked here. Hal Jordan is right there. Hal Jordan as a cocky little high school shit would have been perfect. Would have absolutely been perfect. And Hal Jordan's in the book. Right. Which... how Jordan would have been a better option. Luthor. Luthor was like showed up on the next page. I do just want to give a shout out. I love the character design of everybody who's in this book, though. I love that Hal Jordan has his green sports band only on his right hand. Like it's his power ring. I love that you see green arrow there with his hood. Like I, again, I was thoroughly enjoying the first 15 pages of this. I was like, oh my God, this is really fun and wonderful. And then it just takes a turn. Yeah, yeah. Too bad it's 150 pages. Isn't it? the, The art is great all the way through. The designs, the art. I understand that they're putting Jack in purple because he's the Joker. But I kind of wish the hood, it was like a purple jacket with a red hood. Oh, I see what you did there. Here's my question I have for you, Batman aficionados, um, in the comic realm. Jack Napier, correct me if I'm wrong, is the Joker from the Tim Burton Batman film. I was under the impression that they made that backstory for Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson has in his contract he's wrapped around jack napier which is why that's off into the sunset and you don't see jack napier which maybe this is print not film so they get away with it but do you see a lot of jack napier it's used very sporadically 
it's often used in Elseworlds when they want you to know it's the Joker without them saying yeah. it right out there because people associate the name with him. They use it in the animated series once, but the, the mainstream DCU never uses it. There's the, the one joke in uh, one of the first appearances of the, not first appearances, the versions of the Batman's first encounter with Joker where Joker has a cousin whose last name is Napier spelled backwards, which is just an inside gag. But no, he's never Napier in the comics. We just saw him in the the Hush, uh, Elseworlds, Tales, Dark Multiverse, etc., etc. Right, they used it there again because it was it's an Elseworlds and they wanted to make sure you really got that this was Joker. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I think you are right. It is just a convenient shorthand for, oh, this is this is our Joker guy. He might not be Joker yet, but eventually he's going to be. I also do want they go out of their way to be like everyone else in this school has superpowers. We see Penguin. We see, I mean, Dick Grayson. Harley Quinn. Harley. And then I like how they're like, and Dick Grayson has his gymnastics. And it's like, well, I don't know, Bruce. I feel like if you work hard, you too could be on the same. Like... Boy, if you were to travel like, the world for, you know, 10 years and study in a bunch of places, you might be this good too. And also the D&D nerd in me absolutely was kind of bugged at the end when Bruce was like, ah, but I'm smart and that's my superpower. And it's like, no, what you are is clever. That's <laughs> wisdom, not intelligence. You outthink Joker and Bane. But you don't have to be smart to do that. You have to be clever. Luthor being in the school almost makes sense as he is the world's smartest man. But he's smart. That power's already in the school. We've made it clear. He's there with Brainiac. Brainiac's an alien robot whose whole thing is he's smart. And of course, that's a turn that we could have seen coming at the very beginning. Oh, Bruce Wayne's superpower is his being smart. Another sort of character-breaking moment for me is when Bruce's I'm so smart plot leads to them blowing up the school yeah i'm also not sure how in character alfred is at certain points i'm good about you not getting yourself hurt but you know we just need to leave the city the way it is and you shouldn't get involved like no i have to say before that so he gets home from school on his own coming home and he's like, where's my guardian? Where's Alfred? And Alfred's chilling, playing tennis. That seems so out of character for Alfred to me. Of not just, I guess Alfred plays tennis, but also him being like, hey, yeah, yeah, you do your thing. I'm just on vacation over here. Yes, 11-year-old boy. Why don't you walk home in this dangerous city where your parents were shot on the street? I'm not going to come and pick you up. And, you know, I'm sure Bruce like, no, I don't need you to. I think canonical Alfred or most versions of Alfred were like, no, I have to make sure you don't get shot in the street. So my other sort of topical question is at what point does calling out the foibles of a genre break the fiction? Because there are so many jokes in this that are pointing out how ridiculous all of the aspects of Batman being Batman are. Oh, we're going to go down in this cave. 
and we're going to put the weapons lab by this dangerous cliff and the fight training area by that big pile of guano and all of the badger boy jokes. Although I, I will say when he is doing the costume montage, there was a shark costume. So it counts. Shark watch. When he at the end gives Selena the bat shaped rock and it's like, you know, just put it in front of a flashlight and shine it onto a cloud. And well, wouldn't it be better to just give me your cell phone? Because maybe there's not clouds and this seems yeah. awfully impractical. It's so much winking at the camera that you do it once. It's kind of cute. You do it over and over again in the book. It again, threw me out of the book. I actually thought about this a lot because again, I was very put off by this Batman. And again, a lot of winking, making fun of this Batman that I didn't like. Whereas, and I thought to myself, I love the Batman in the Harley Quinn comic. The, I refer to it as a Harley Quinn comic. The satirical one that's based off the animated cartoon, not more serious Harley Quinn that I know she's got going on. And to me, I love that Batman in it. And I love how they're poking fun of his relationship with Commissioner Gordon. I love that they're making fun of Commissioner Gordon. And I think the difference that I came to, to answer your question, is that's a Harley Quinn comic that's poking some fun at Batman. So it kind of let it slide because I'm not there to show up for Batman. It's like, haha. I think, though, this was just so much front and center of having... You're poking fun at the protagonist I'm supposed to be enjoying and liking rather than poking fun at sort of a nemesis or a side character. Because if I was a kid reading this, I don't know if I'd want to read more Batman or if I'd be like, I'm kind of, eh, he was kind of dorky. He's every other generic middle grades diary of a insert here kid yeah. that you'd read. He's the diary of the wimpy kid. He's... In retrospect, not having read this going in, which, by the way, if you couldn't tell, they're listening, based on the cover date. With these graphic novels, the cover date is the release date. This thing is, at the time of this recording, two weeks old. We are recording this right on top of when this came out. I wish I had paired this instead of the third story, which I still enjoyed, but nonetheless. There was a series called... The Secret Society of Superheroes or something like that. It was Dustin Wynn and Derek Friedolfs doing something very much in that Diary of a Wimpy Kid style with the journals and the comic pages. And it was Bruce and Diana and Clark together in middle school. It was a very similar concept, but he's a young Bruce Wayne there. And Clark is in character. And it would have been a really interesting to read that right on top of this to compare and contrast them. But I initially was like, I don't want to do them in the same episode because the concepts are similar and I don't want us to be like, so yeah, this one was just like the other one. But Not instead better. it would have been great because they would have been such different takes on the same basic concept. Up to including, I believe Hugo Strange is one of the evil teachers in one of those Secret Society of Superheroes or Society of Superheroes books. I know there's one that has Rachel Ghoul and, ah. and and Talia in school with them too. But it, it's got a very similar concept, but is done in completely different ways. I mean, Bruce there is does still screw up a bunch because he's, you know, 10, but he's 
hyper confident and you see more of that he could become Batman versus here where he's more a good hearted goober than Batman. And I don't want a goober in my Batman comic book. I want a Batman who's capable, like in many ways. And it's it's rather convenient that I have my wife here on the episode. This is a lot like Batman pissing himself in uh, year one, at least, you know, in in spirit. I would agree with that. This is like very much, again, if this Batman, like if this was, Batman was a side character of, let's say it's this world dealing with other things. It'd be like, oh yeah, it's Batman, he's 10. But he just does not have, that's not the Batman protagonist that I want. And there are certain things that the Batman protagonist I think needs, which is just the same way with Clark of just like, no, no, I, I, that's, you've completely taken me out of this story and I'm now thinking about why and picturing pitch meetings in my head instead of enjoying it. One of the other ones of these that we read is Overdrive, which granted Bruce is a little older there. He's 16. He's getting his driver's license, so he's 16 or 17. And yeah, he's not quite the Bruce Wayne we're used to. He's more of a brat. He's more angry at Alfred and brash. But you still see Bruce under there. He is still Bruce Wayne. And there you have this really, really good, good take on Alfred and this really strong paternal thing that Alfred has for Bruce, which felt more like this is there for the grownups who are reading it with their kids to see some of dad reading it to his son and seeing, Oh yeah, I see that, you know, this is how I want to have our relationship be. There's something there for the adults. Or to sit back and say either, yeah, that was how I felt about my dad, or boy, I wish my dad was that guy. And Bruce comes around by the end of Overdrive. Like, there's growth and development and change. Uh, this Bruce is just a goober. Again, this book is the right not, word, goober. This book is not for me. But just to say, it is a very competently done book. The art is really strong. If this was not a Batman book... If this was generic superhero protagonist kid, I could sit back and be like, yeah, I walked out of that. And I was like, yeah, that was a fun little generic, you know, kid without superpowers in a world of people with superpowers story. The it's origins of Night Owl. Right. But making it a <laughs> Batman story is what kind of threw me out of this one. Okay, if you guys keep pitching better versions of this, that's not helping this seem better. <laughs> but the origins of Night Owl, that is perfect. <laughs> like, can we can we cut that just so we can keep that for ourselves? I think there's a future in that idea. I'll, I'll print out a copy of the podcast and mail it to myself. That's how that works, right? <laughs> that does it for me. Yeah, that does it for me. So that means it's time that Bruce Wayne, not super on the big board. Just talking about it. So looking at it, Overdrive is down at 164. So this is going below 164. Indeed it is. I would have a tough time putting this above 200 simply because that, that is just such a fundamental miscalculation with Clark. Again, bad. Yeah. 
for all of its weirdness, Holy Terror at 203 at least gets all of its characters right. That that it does. Uh, but I will say this is a better read than Spawn Batman at 216, which was an incoherent mess. I was looking at that and say, thinking pretty much the same thing, that yes, it goes above that. What are, what are we thinking when it comes to 207, the Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance? That was an unpleasant mess. It um, was. This, I'd say, was a pleasant mess. Yes. Above that is Dark Joker the Wild, which is another one that is sort of all over the place. It's another Batman that doesn't necessarily feel like Batman. I will say, I think the ceiling for this is right there. Uh, Detective 205, RCB 205, Detective, Detective Comics 482, Batmite's New York Adventure. Cute. Yeah. Absolutely 100% cute and weird. And I like this under that. And again, we got Holy Terror at 203. So hard, I mean, I, hard ceiling at 203. I mean, I actually think we could put it right below Batmite. I think it could be the yeah. new 206. Yeah, works for me. All right. Our final story of the night is Tree of Knowledge. This is Batman Adventures, Volume 1, number 26. The writer is Kelly Puckett, pencils by Mike Parabek, inks by Rick Burchett, colors by Rick Taylor, letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and edited by Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. The cover date is November of 1994. Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson cross paths both in and out of their respective costumed identities as Batgirl and Robin, as they study criminology at Gotham U and try to discover who stole the MacGuffin pistols. <laughs> the MacGuffin pistols. Yeah. It's a bit on the nose, but for a book that was geared again towards the eight to 12 year old set, that's a fun thing for you to grow into. Cause I'm telling you when I read this, when I was 13, I didn't know what a MacGuffin was. I do now appreciate it now. Now, how would you define MacGuffin? Because I know occasionally in movie circles, uh, we tend to get into these pointless little arguments about what is and what is not a MacGuffin. A MacGuffin is something that is integral to the plot, but serves no actual purpose in the story. The Maltese Falcon is the thing everyone is after. But the Maltese Falcon doesn't do anything. The, the pistols work because the pistols are just the object that they're searching for. But yeah, so I think that is the best way I can think of defining MacGuffin versus something that is actively part of the plot. But that was, let's talk about cinema terms uh, before we actually get into this story, which is another one of these fun little one-off Batman adventures stories from that original volume. There is no Batman at all in this story. It is purely a Batgirl and Robin story. And it's more than that, mostly a Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon story. We only get Batgirl and Robin in the latter third of the book. It's mostly Dick and Babs in what is basically a Columbo without a murder. Because you know who did it at the beginning. It's the, the question of 
how they did it and how Barbara and Dick are going to catch their duplicitous professor. What will give him away? As I've been watching a lot of Poker Face lately, I've come to really appreciate that, come to once again appreciate the genre. I've always appreciated it because I love me some Columbo. Just one more thing. This is one more thing. I was always more of a Quincy man myself. Ah. I was going to say that too. I love you, honey. We're like you and I are like this. I have very fond recollections of midday syndicated reruns of Columbo when I was very, very young and sitting with my great aunt who used to babysit me. And she'd have she had this big chair in her apartment that was big enough for her and another person because she was a very small little old lady. And me, like five or six, just sitting there in the chair next to her and watching Columbo, not getting it at all, but <laughs> appreciating Peter Falk's acting and how interesting the character is. And then coming back to it as a teenager and an adult and really understanding how great a show Columbo was. But this still has nothing to do with Batman. No. Robin or Batgirl. We'll get there. This is a a mystery. This is set up, again, a a how-done-it, not a who-done-it. And you get a lot of that. It's set up right from jump in this, where... Babs and Dick are taking criminology at Gotham U and it starts out with the professor being shot in class and it turning out it's instead a a lesson about who can be the most observant, which, you know, works better. And you'd think, you know, if Jonathan Crane had thought to use a cap gun instead of a regular gun, he might never have become the scarecrow. Ah, if only. And from there, we we go into the MacGuffin pistols being stolen and Barbara wanting to prove to this professor that she could find them, that she could think in, quote, the criminal mindset, which he says she probably couldn't. And it, of course, coming back around and turning out that he is the one who stole the pistols. And again, it's a Maltese Falcon thing where it's not about the pistols. It's about the fact that the diamond, there are diamonds hidden in the, the, um, the handles where the Maltese Falcon, it's supposed to be, it's the, it's the jewels that make the Falcon what people want. It's not that the Falcon itself is that valuable. And it is because of the jewels. It's not for the history of the, the Falcon. And here it's not the history of the pistols. It's the fact that there's diamonds in them. So let me tell you, or let me ask you this, uh, Master criminology criminal professor uh why not just take the diamonds and put the guns back the only thing i could see there is that it he had to he would have had to get back in with the pistols because he couldn't just easily unscrew the plates on the handles to get the diamonds out while they were still in the museum i guess (laughs) my real question is like a I liked this comic, so I'm not trying to be a sniper to it. And I I love me some Dick and Babs going at it. And I love that when then she sees Robin, she's like, Robin! Like, excited to see Robin. But she's like, his whole thing is, well, you see, I knew that it was a cap gun because it was a distinctive sound. As opposed to the fact that I knew it was a cap gun because when the guy got shot... He was completely fine. 
and didn't fall over dead with a horrible mess. It was like, cap gun? Cap gun. He, he does seem to fall forward when he is quote-unquote shot. And my, my take on that is that Dick didn't immediately jump up and go into action as Robin because he knew it was a fake. But yeah, I I can see where you're arguing that particular point. I love, I think you pointed out that Barbara's relationship to Dick is so different than Batgirl's relationship to Robin. And it's similar that her relationship to Bruce Wayne and Batman, where her line about, oh, I bet you wish want to be Bruce Wayne, but you need a lobotomy for that. Yeah. And plastic surgery. And... Plastic surgery and lobotomy, yeah. That it's her her view of Bruce is so different from her view of Batman. This Barbara is a little harsher than the Barbara in the cartoon. But she has a, a couple of scenes with Bruce in the cartoon where she isn't that way. But I guess there she's actually talking to Bruce versus talking about him when he's not around. And animated series Bruce was definitely the bumbler when he was in Bruce Wayne persona. So I can see that. My favorite thing of probably the whole week are the excerpts from Bullock's police report. Yes. Just hilarious. The kind of gag that you couldn't do on the television show, but absolutely in concert with the tone and the spirit of the show. Just perfect. Bullock's police report with Montoya's notes. Both of them. Just like the scumbag for the perpetrator. The idiot perpetrator and i love it the the very end despite that thing being sliced to ribbons and the half of it being cut out montoya's finally being much better than the last time can you imagine the, the last time was just expletives it's the uh episode of the simpsons where homer has to write the restaurant review and the, the editor's looking at it's like and the last third of it is just Flanders sucks over and over again. <laughs> Getting to 300 words is hard. That is a really good character moment. And Barbara's, despite me not being sure how I felt about that Bruce Wayne thing, she's very much in character. She's the go-getter. She wants to be number one. And here she's got Dick who... Granted, when it comes to a criminology class, has something of an inside track. Not that anyone else knows it. But it's like she she wants to be the best. And she doesn't understand when she's talking to the professor why she got an A and he got an A plus. And it's it's again that he knows how to think like a criminal and she doesn't. And then you get the cute moment of her going to meet Jim and her going into his office and there being gory crime scene photos and her being like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Because she's probably only been Batgirl very briefly at this point. So it's not like she has a lot of experience with gory crime scenes. But then she proves that she has the criminal mindset because she's the one who puts together how the pistols were stolen, even with a little help from Grayson. And if the professor had done this with almost any other student, he probably would have gotten away with it. But partly is using Babs as his alibi was maybe not the best idea, but he wouldn't have expected her, I guess, to go and want to figure out who did steal the pistols. That's a level of go-getter that most probably 
don't have. I really was expecting here at the end the this uh, tough guy mobster had more than a passing refer- or resemblance to Matches Malone. It would have been fun to have a Matches Malone moment there. Especially if Batgirl and Robin come in and it's like, don't want to blow my cover in front of her, so I guess I'm going to have to let... Like, Batgirl gets to punch out Matches Malone and he has to kind of let her so he doesn't let on that that's Batman. Because he knew this professor was rotten. He could just, he could feel it. You know, he suddenly becomes this professor a year ago. I gotta wonder, was this a whole thing? A long con? Like, hes they said he's just been a professor for a year. He was some noted criminologist outside of that before. Was this whole thing just to get to the point where he could s- steal these diamonds? We need to check those transcripts. Yeah. <laughs> It's like how Scarecrow can be an English professor. (laughs) Uh, I could be an economics professor, right? You know how to balance a checkbook? You're good. Mostly. This, I mean, there's also this whole, there's an extended quote from the Confessions of St. Augustine in here. This is, again, a book that is trying to appeal to both a young audience and have things for the grown-ups. That Bullock report is absolutely there for an older audience to read and get a good chuckle at. I'm not sure if, you know, your eight to 10 year old who was reading this book was going to get just how funny that is as a concept. But yeah, that's why this works better and why it's a little more timeless than something like Not Super, which is very geared for a very specific age group. And I got to think they're not going to be reading uh, Not Super in 30 years. Probably If they want to come out with a coffee table pamphlet of just the art of Not Super, I will pre-order right now. Or some nice full pages of those character designs. I'm... Totally down for that. And I'd be looking at that 30 years from now when I've forgotten how bad the story was. A poster of the, that Arkham Asylum page from like page three or page is five. That would be a nice little like background for my Zoom. Just have me in front of Arkham Asylum. I'd be all about that. And, And just speaking of the art, I mean, this is, we've talked about any number of issues of Batman Adventures and they all have the same basic art team. At this point, this is the same art team that did the Batman-Superman team-up, the same one that did that Clayface-Summer Gleason story. This is solid, really captures that animated series vibe. Just very enjoyable. It, it, it's why this is, this is one of, as a series, one of the best translations of a show to a comic. Very much in its spirit. I think I'm good. I am. Yeah, I am as well. Well, that means it's time with the Batman Adventures number 26 on the big board. We've got, we've done a bunch of issues of adventures. I mean, the highest ones are, are real high. They're in the thirties and this isn't up there. This is more in the, the heart of the series. So the issue before this, 25, which is the Batman-Superman team-up, is down at 86. I don't think it quite reaches that spot. 
I really like the plot here. Like, right? Like, cause cause it, it made sense from A to B to C. Like Absolutely. why did why did we have the classroom demonstration? Oh, it was for the professor to see which one of his students were actually observant. Let's get those people out of the, you know, the library when I need to take the guns. Like it just it made sense. And that that was nice. Yeah. I just I said it would go below 86, below Super Friends. But a little below that at number 90 is a similar clockworky sort of there's a mystery and we're trying to solve it with a bullet for Bullock. That mystery ended as soon as Bullock mentioned he was in a rent-controlled apartment. True. The mystery here is probably better. But the character stuff in a bullet for Bullock is defining of Harvey Bullock. Uh, that is true. That is true. Uh, I I think we're we're digging around the right area. Yeah, I think maybe a couple spots below that. I might put this at ninety three. Ninety two is that really fun impulse story. That has some really good Joker and Batman characterization. 93 currently is Batman the Spirit. That is a mystery of sorts, but is much more the mystery is there to serve Jeff Loeb's love of cramming as many characters as he possibly can into any one story. And frankly, is only as high as 93 because it's Darwin Cook and is just stunning. I would probably reread this before rereading that. I mean, flip through that first because it's really pretty. But reading the story, I would probably reread this one first. I agree with that. New 93. New 93 it is. Well, Abigail, thank you for coming on the show again. Thank you guys so much for having me. We always appreciate it. Uh, That is it for this week. Next week, uh, our episode is dropping the week of Mother's Day. So we're going to spend a week with Batman's favorite mother figure, or at least my favorite mother figure for Batman, Dr. Leslie Tompkins. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Esquire. Hard bomb. Esquire. Asimov Fangirl. Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper. John Wickham. Robert Secundus. Bye, Tim Rooney. Giorgio Sergioli. David Wheel. And Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, 
as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.